to us. It's, it's challenging. God will uh, he'll give us a word or he'll tell us something that we know we should do or we shouldn't do. And it's challenging. Usually it challenges us. I'll tell you, um, this chapter, we're going to continue our series, The Church is Not About the Building, uh, series on First Timothy. This chapter, chapter 3, was very challenging for me. And hearing this message, I know, will be very challenging to hear. Um, so I want you to know that as I was preparing this message, I was praying for each one of you because um, I wanted God to speak to you because I love you and I care about you. I have a sticky note for my digital notes. <laughs> Thanks to Nate, he reminded me of that. Well, if this is your first time here today, I'd like to welcome you. Um, my name is Stephen Carlisle. And my sermon title today is Follow the Leader, Lead the Follower, Becoming the Person that Others Want to Follow. But before we begin, I just want to take a moment to remind all of us that we're all at different places in our journey. Some of us have been serving God for decades, and some of us maybe just a few years or days some of us may not have really committed to following Jesus wholeheartedly. So what you know, others in this room may not have ever heard before. What may seem elementary to you may be eye-opening to the person in front of you or, or behind you. And I, I think that we should consider that, not only today, but every Sunday when we come together. I don't want to leave anybody, I don't want anybody to leave today thinking to themselves, I have no idea what that guy just said. But I want to bring you along. With that said, the Bible, it consists of 66 different books or letters that we call books. Written probably about 40 people. Thirteen of those letters were written by a man named Paul. And out of those thirteen, two of them he wrote to a man named Timothy. The first one is titled 1 Timothy, and the second one, 2 Timothy. Imagine that. That's amazing. See how smart I am? <laughs> Just. We're going to be in 1 Timothy. We're going to be in the third chapter. And that's located close to the end of your Bibles. But did you know that in the very front of your Bible, you can find a list of every single one of those books in the page number that it references? Sometimes it's hard. Okay, he said that's where, and you just kind of leaf through and hope that it, you see it, and then stop and open. Oh, okay, now I know where he's at. And that might take some time. So to quickly jump to where we're at, you could find what page number is off the table of contents, and quickly get there. I hope that benefits somebody today. So if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy, 
will be in chapter 3, or your Bible apps. 1 Timothy 3 is about church leadership. And my goal is to show you a new perspective on leadership. One that will change your life, not just your Sunday. The church is not about the building, but the church is about leading. There's a connection, we'll learn. There's a connection between the leadership in the church and the congregation. And there's also a connection between the congregation and the rest of the world. 1 Timothy 3 is not only a qualification checklist for church leaders, but if you've ever wondered what Jesus, what his character was like, this is where you'll find his character. This is a list of the characteristics of God right here in chapter 3. So this is a very important list. And we can tell it's important because when Paul wrote this letter, he used words like, he must be, or he must not be. And that leaves no room for any misunderstanding. It's either black or white. There's no, there's no gray area. But what about those of us that we're not in church leadership, and we have no plans to go into church leadership? And maybe you don't even ever want a leadership role in anything, whether it's churches or work or school. This, this message wouldn't be for you then, right? Well, I believe it is. I believe this message is for everyone in this room, whether you're 8 or you're 80, whether you're male or female, whether you're my son Deuce or my dad Dave. This message is for all of us because I believe we are all leaders in one way or another. That wouldn't be true if, if Jesus... See, Jesus, he gave us a command to go, therefore, and make disciples, to make followers. So if we weren't leaders, then he wouldn't have given us this command. So what's it mean to lead? Leading is commonly defined as influencing someone towards something. Whether you're aware of it or not, you are a leader. You may not feel like you have the capability or a personality to lead. But you are a leader, every single one of you. And that's because you're influencing someone towards something. Now, you can be a negative influence and become a barrier between others and God. Or you could be a positive influence and become a bridge between others and God. Most of the time, we don't even realize that we're doing this, that we're influencing someone. For instance, Hudson Taylor was a missionary, a Christian missionary in China back in the 1800s. And the communist government China hired 
a writer to write a biography about Hudson Taylor. And as you can imagine, this was not going to be a good biography. They wanted to discredit Hudson. They wanted to drag his name through the mud, make him look bad. The writer took the job, but as he was doing his research, he realized, I can't do this. He ended up giving his life to Jesus Christ and following Jesus. Hudson Taylor influenced this writer by his lifestyle, his godly lifestyle. 1 Corinthians 15.33, and I have, you don't have to turn there, but I, I, I always tell, I've told all of my kids this, and it says, don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Bad company corrupts good character. If you're spending all of your time with bad company, don't think your good character will remain the same. It won't. It will become corrupt. Now, I'm not saying ignore those people because <laughs> I wouldn't be standing here if that were so. Because trust me, I was bad. I was bad character. But you will be influenced by someone. And someone will be influenced by you. That we can count on. So we have to be aware of two things. Who you are following. Who is influencing you. And two, how are you leading? How are you influencing those around you? Are you bad character, bad company, or good character? Most of us would say, well, we're, we're good. We're all basically good. But if you was to go out in the streets and begin to ask people, why do you deserve to go to heaven? Most of them would respond with, well, because I'm basically good. We influence ourselves. We tell ourselves that we're good. We compare ourselves with others who are worse than us. For instance, the liar says, I may have told, told a few lies, but at least I don't steal anything. But the thief, he says, well, I may have stolen a few things, but I haven't hurt anybody. And the violent man says, oh, I may have punched a few faces, but I ain't killed anybody. See how that goes? That's how we begin to influence ourselves. You are your own biggest leader. You influence yourself more than anybody else. Now, this is not, I'm not, this is not a self-help. So we have to look within ourselves. That's not what I'm saying. We have to look towards Jesus Christ. He is who we must follow. But we also have to be honest with ourselves. If we want to influence and lead others well, we must influence and lead ourselves well. You can follow Jesus and still make bad decisions. Amen? Okay. Just want to make sure you're on the same page with me. Most of us are pretty good at leading ourselves when it comes to our own business, what we want. But what about the Father's business? What about leading ourselves in what He wants? Oftentimes, I know personally, I justify 
my thoughts, to get what I want. For instance, one day, it was a long day, I, it was in the evening time, and I just wanted to relax. I just sat down in my chair, kicked my feet up, turned on the TV. I was like, yeah. And then the thought occurred to me, I haven't spent any time reading the Word. I haven't spent any time with God in His Word. And then I justified. Oh, I just want to relax. I just want to relax. I'll do it in the morning. I'll get up early. I'll set an alarm. Well, morning comes. The alarm will go off. The alarm called justification. Oh, ten more minutes. I'm so tired. Ten more minutes. Snooze. The alarm goes off again. Oh, justification. Ten more minutes. Snooze. Justification is an alarm that we must not hit snooze on. It's an alarm for us to wake up and realize what we're doing. Great leaders do this and do this well. The leadership checklist in 1 Timothy, it motivates us to ask ourselves some important questions. And these are on your notes. How is my personal life? How is my family life? Does my church life reflect my personal and family life? And what would people outside of the church say about my character? Well, that was a long introduction. Hopefully we'll get out of here by Tuesday evening. Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful um, for the wisdom that you gave me. And um, everything that I've learned and everything that I understood comes from you. So, Lord, everything that I say, I hope that you bless into the hearts of every person here. Lord, use these words. Cause our hearts to receive what you want to tell us. We need you, Lord. We need you desperately. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, what we're going to do is we're going we're to read through verses 1 through 7. And we'll skip down to 14 and 15, and then we'll come back to uh, verse 1, uh, just to clarify and define some of these. There's a lot here, so uh, we'll, we'll try to get through these real quick. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil." Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders 
so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Skip down to verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Amen. I want you to notice a key, uh, key verse here. This is verse 15. This is the reason why Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, at least one of the reasons, if not the reason for the whole letter, not just the chapter. He says, I'm writing these things in 14 and 15 so that you'll know how to, one must conduct himself in the household of God. So Paul wrote this to Timothy so Timothy would know how to be an example for the church to follow. Of course, Paul isn't talking about a church building because the church is not about the building, but leading a group of people that he refers to as a household, a family, people, women, men. We make up the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. A body is a living organism, not an organized way of living. And this is important to us because there's a connection between church leadership and the congregation. You can tell the, the, the quality of the leadership by the quality of the congregation. If the leadership is of good spiritual quality, then the congregation is going to be of good spiritual quality. However, if the congregation is poor spiritual quality, you can almost guarantee leadership is poor spiritual quality. Churches need spiritually qualified leaders to help them grow into a healthy spiritual body. And so that Paul gives Timothy these instructions so he'll know how to conduct himself, how to be good spiritual quality example for others to follow. And then there's the connection between the congregation and the world. If we're good spiritual quality, then we are reflecting Jesus. And we lead people to Jesus. Okay, let's return to verse 1 for clarity. Here's a trustworthy saying. Hold on a second. I apologize. I still had that gum in my mouth. Here's a trustworthy saying. This is a statement that is worthy of our trust. We can, we can see that this is true. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Notice here, he desires a task. This is a work that a person desires. This isn't a position. This isn't a title. He's not trying to elevate himself above others, this is not ambition. Ambition is one who's seeking the role of power for selfish reasons. This is aspiration. Aspiration really isn't, connect, isn't concerned about the title, but it is concerned, am I worthy of it? Those two different words that he used there, aspires and desires, these Greek words, they paint a picture of one who is reaching out to grab a hold of something because of this 
inner passion that I just got to have it. I just, this is, a, this is a work that one has to do. It's not, he doesn't just go, well, you know what? Pastor, huh? Now yeah, give it a shot. That's not what this is saying. This is a, a deep longing, this desire that I got to do this work. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he, I heard a quote from him once. He said, do not enter the ministry if you can help it. And when I first heard that, I thought, he don't want anybody to go to the ministry. <laughs> that sounds crazy. But if you look at it from this perspective, it's a deep passion that i got to have it. i got to do this. I've tried other things. It just keeps this desire. i got to do this. If you can do something else, then do it. But if you can't, then go into the ministry. you got to have the desire. One will have the desire for the work. A friend of mine was in uh, the church uh, that he was going to, asked him to be in leadership. And uh, he said he'd pray about it, and so he did. And, but he told him, you know what, I, I have to decline. Well, then sometime later, they asked him again. Hey, we want you to be in leadership. And he said, well, I'll pray about it. And so he prayed about it, and he told him, I'm sorry, I have to decline. And then they asked him a third time. By this time, people are coming up to him saying, hey, you'd be perfect for the job. I could see you doing this work. You know, you're perfectly qualified. But... He started, he started, actually started to believe, maybe this is a sign from God. Maybe God's telling me that's what he's calling me to do, be in leadership. But he wanted to be faithful in prayer, so he prayed. And after he was done praying, he said, I'm sorry, I have to decline. You see, God didn't give him a desire for that work. So if you don't have the desire, it's not going to be completed. It's not going to work if the desire is not there. Therefore, an overseer. Now, your Bible, depending on translation, the word might be overseer, might be bishop, might just be church leader. That Greek word is episkopos. That's where we get the term episcopal, episcopalian church. It derived from two different words, epi and skopos. Epi means on or upon. And skopos, it means to look at intently from a distance. Where we get the English term scope, like a scope on a rifle or a telescope. If you think about it this way, the idea of a runner who is running a race and he sees the finish line his eyes are completely and totally fixed on that finish line to win the race. That is kind of what this is. An overseer is a man who is called by God to keep his eye intently on his flock for providing personalized care and protection. So one might be asking, well, why don't we call our leadership overseers? I thought that's what an elder is. If that's not an elder... What's an elder? Well, an elder is also a term used in the Bible to describe leadership in the church. In Acts 14.23, it says, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church. So that word there is presbyteros, 
That's the Greek word presbyteros. We get the English term presbyter, Presbyterian church. Both, uh, it, this, is, this just means older. This was typically a man who was 50 years of age or older. He had some life experiences. He had some wisdom to teach others. But both of these terms were used in the, in the same capacity. An elder, or a presbyteros, still explained scriptures, still taught doctrine, still watched over and cared for the people in the, in the same capacity that an, an overseer would or a, an episcopos would. As a matter of fact, in the letter to Titus, in the first chapter, Paul's talking about an elder, but he uses the word overseer synonymously. One and the same. So I, I kind of come up with my own definition of what an overseer or an elder is. It's one who protects by watching intently on the people in the church because his desire is to care for the spiritual and the physical needs of those in the church with the goal of glorifying Jesus in the life of those of whom he watches and in his own life. So, someone might be sitting there thinking, why in the world is there two different terms for the same thing? This is confusing. It can be. However, if you think about it this way, an elder mainly refers to the person and an overseer to the office. An elder is what he is. The, office, the overseer is what he does. Make sense? Okay. Today we use the term pastor and elder. Now, our elders, most of them are not 50 years or older. But we use the term pastor. Pastor typically is his, he's also an elder. A pastor is an elder. But he's, typically this is his full-time job. And an elder typically has a full-time job somewhere else. Both are working in the same capacity. Verse 2 also brings us to the personal life of an individual. The overseer must be above reproach. This literally means blameless or without accusation, something that can't be laid hold of, that there's nothing in a person's life that the enemy can grab a hold of and interfere with or ruin his work or his testimony. This doesn't mean sinless or there would be no church leaders. Amen? Must be the husband of one wife. There's lots of debate on this. Some say that this means that if a person has been divorced and remarried, can't be in leadership. Some say it deals with polygamy. Some say that if you're single, you can't be in leadership. The literal translation means one woman man. To be faithful to only one woman. This does not exclude divorced or single men. Can a man that have been divorced and remarried be in leadership? Absolutely. I do believe so. Now, this may take some time to clarify, to make a determination. I have a friend of mine, uh, both him and his wife are Christians, and their marriage has been going rough for a long time. And one day, his wife said, I moved out. I'm moving out. When are you going to do that? Thursday. See you later. Bye. Now, up to this point, 
He has done everything that he possibly could. Professional counseling with a Christian counselor. Counseling with a pastor. He's done everything to try to restore this relationship. Could he go into leadership? Absolutely. I do believe. Now, I wouldn't recommend it, obviously, right now. But say years down the road, could he go into leadership? Absolutely. I do believe. Now, with that said, if a person is in leadership as uh, an elder and his marriage is failing and it looks like it's going to divorce, this person, I believe, should step out of that role and focus directly on his wife. That becomes the most important at this time. Must be sober-minded. Metaphorically speaking, this is a mind that is absent of alcohol. What happens when you put a lot of alcohol in the body? The mind's not so clear, is it? We might say clear-headed. A person that's got complete control of his thoughts. He's not influenced negatively. Sober-minded person has a disciplined thought life in a way that will bring him closer to God. He might have to say no to certain things or yes to certain things because he wants to be a good example of Jesus for others to follow. And this is directly connected. I think these two are directly connected. Uh, One who's sober-minded and one who must be self-control, a person who has complete control of his actions. And the best example that I could come up with is a person that is preparing for the Olympic Games. This person, uh, they have a lifestyle. Their whole life is, revolves around this little gold medal that they're going to hang on their chest, only to later hang on the wall or maybe sell. <laughs> but they work hard. They work hard, discipline not only their body, but their whole lives to win their gold. They are constantly thinking about that gold medal, what they can do differently or better to get that gold medal. See, a self-controlled person, his life, his life is also, he, he has a, he, he's thinking of the prize, the prize that awaits him on that glorious day when Jesus is revealed. That person might have to not watch TV or know when to stop watching TV or turn off the computer or turn the head or they're disciplined. And just on a side note, I, I, I got to mention this because th- this is an area where I fail. Everybody knows what Netflix is and have probably watched series on Netflix. Some of, them, some of those series are, are pretty good. You ever watch, let's try this series. You watch it, you get to the end of it, it's like, wow, that was good. I got to find out what happens next. Let's watch one more. We watch that one. And then... You get to the end of that one, and it's like, oh, i got to watch next. i got to find out what happens next. And then evening comes, and you're like, Whoa, man, we've been watching all eight hours. <laughs> all right, just one more season. A good, a good leader, a good self-disciplined person knows that one more season could be too tempting. So he stops. Why are we tempted? James says, each person is tempted when your own evil desires, you're dragged away and enticed. 
We all have evil desires, every single one of us. When you add enticement, you get temptation. But when you take temptation, and then you add a decision, that equals the response. And good leaders' response is self-control. must be respectable. This is the Greek word cosmos. We get cosmos from it. The universe, the stars, the planet. means orderly arrangement or well-arranged. Sometimes, when I was out west with Jason, I look at the stars and I'm like, wow, there's so many more than I ever saw before in my life. It's like God reached down to his bucket of stars and and that's where they stuck. But we know that's not how it happened. We know he placed each star in a particular place for a particular reason. Every planet in a particular place for a particular reason. The human body, living organism, you can't you can't have an organism without being organized. Every, every limb, bone, and cell perfectly well arranged in a particular way for a particular reason. The opposite would be chaos. Let me give you an illustration of chaos. There's a young man, his name was Richard Sears. He was a railroad agent. And he found out that he could order watches from the manufacturer and then ship them to some agents who would sell them to local people. Well, he teamed up with a guy named Alva Roebuck, and by 1894, Sears and Roebuck had a 300-page catalog. But orders came in so fast that Richard Sears couldn't keep up. They were just flooding in. So you know what he would do? He would light them on fire. He'd burn them like they never existed. I never got that order. That's chaos. He was in desperate need of a respectable man to organize. Desperate. By 1908, Richard Sears was out of the picture. Respectable people don't live chaotic lives. They live well-arranged lives. Must be hospitable. Uh, Jason taught on this already. It literally means loving strangers. Not only are the homes open but our lives are opened up for all to see our godly character. And a side note, every single one of us in this room either was or is a stranger to God. We didn't know God. We were strangers. But God opened up and gave his life for us. That's the ultimate example of hospitableness. Somebody get me a glass of water, please. Anybody? Thank you, Derek. (laughs) My tongue's sticking. Must be able to teach. This does not mean this person is able, uh, he's gifted at standing up on Sunday morning, teaching a sermon in front of a group of people. That's not necessarily what this is saying. What this is saying, it's a person who is able to communicate knowledge of Scripture in a way, thank you, communicate knowledge of Scripture in a way that others can understand it and then apply it to their own lives. Oh, now I don't know what to do with this. 
<laughs> ah, watch, I'll kick that over. That one who's able to communicate knowledge of Scripture in a way for others to understand it and apply it to life. So this could happen in a one-on-one time. So I, I know some people that are, man, they are awesome. It's like you talk to them one-on-one, it's like, wow, I, I never even saw that. But you ask them to get up in front of some people, they're like, no way. But what about you and I? We're not, we're not teachers of the word, right? Most of us aren't. Well, this is still for us because in Romans it says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you believe that? I'm asking a question. Amen? Amen. Well, right after that, in Romans 10, 14, it says, But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And this can happen one-on-one. And how will anyone, anyone go and tell them without being sent? Ah, but I'm not sent. Yes, you are. Remember the Great Commission. Therefore, Jesus said... I have all authority in heaven. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. Now, we break it down a little simpler, don't we? One-on-one, tell people the good news. Verse 3, continued must not be a drunkard. This is one who is dependent on alcohol. He's always drinking. Always got a glass of beer, wine, or liquor, whatever, alcoholic drink. Um, he lacks discipline. When it comes to alcohol, it's, there's a, a lack of discipline there. He can't say no or lacks the ability to say no. Lacks the ability to stop or to know when to stop. Must not be violent, but gentle. This is a complete opposite of an individual. Violent seems to state, you're ready to punch somebody in the face. Pound them into the ground. But gentle, it's implying reasonable, moderate. One who forbears, who is quick to forgive. Elders should be great listeners. We all should be great listeners. You know, what someone has to say is just as important as what you have to say. Especially when it comes to criticism, because we know we influence ourselves, don't we? We say we're better than we are. So when someone criticizes us, we should listen to it. And think, is, is that true? Could that be true? Maybe seek some wisdom from someone else. Hey, do you see this about my life? Is this, is this true? Also, elders should allow others to serve. Allow them to serve in a way that they're not being dictators or get angry 
with those who serve when mistakes are made. But when, when a mistake is made, come alongside them and say, you know, that's okay. How can we do this better? What can we do to, to help you do better the next time? Good leader forbears, forgives, is gentle, reasonable. And he doesn't argue. Must not be quarrelsome, not prone to arguing or getting into arguments. Why do we argue anyway? You ever thought about that? James tells us. In the book of James it says you argue because you don't get what you want. <laughs> we expect something. We say we deserve it. We're entitled to it. Well, you know what entitlement is? It's a lack of contentment. Good leaders are content. They're peacemakers. Must not be a lover of money. He's not money hungry. He doesn't pursue after material or monetary wealth. His love is Jesus and people. He pursues his creator, not the created. Verse 4 brings us to the family life. Must manage his own family well. And see that his children obey him and must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. What I see here, what I see here is a man who takes responsibility as his job as a father and as a husband. He doesn't give that responsibility to his wife. He doesn't say, ah, you take care of that. He's not lazy and say, ah, if I, if I don't do anything, she'll do it. She'll take care of it. I'll just sit here and act like I'm asleep. He owns this responsibility because he cares for the spiritual and physical needs of his wife and his children. He lets his children be children. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to do things they, they shouldn't. But he's diligent to observe what they are doing because there's dangerous things around and there's things that they probably shouldn't be getting into. He doesn't let his children just run wild and do whatever they want. But he's diligent to watch and observe and be careful and watch over them. Remember my definition of uh, what an elder was, one who protects by watching intently on the people in the church? Well, if you change that word from church to family, this is a man who manages his own family well. He protects by watching intently on his family because his desire is to care for the spiritual and physical needs of his family with the goal of glorifying Jesus in the life of his wife and children and in his own life. Because, verse 5, if anyone doesn't know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? That rhetorical question, I kind of like it. I I don't know. I, I imagine Paul, when he's writing this... Duh! He can't take care of his own house. How can he take care of God's? I don't know. Verse 6 brings us to the church life. Must not be a recent convert. Why do you suppose that is? You know, every great Christian leader had to be a new believer at some point, right? Well, he says, may become conceited and fall under the same judgment of the devil. New believers are awesome to be around. I love to be around new believers. Their whole lives are changed. They're constantly talking about Jesus. They're constantly thinking about Jesus. They're always reading the word. But, just like Satan, 
who became proud. A new believer who is placed into leadership, they, they can begin to think that they're better than they actually are. Might say, man, I've only been a Christian for six months. And I'm already the pastor. What's wrong with you people? A new believer needs time to mature before being placed into leadership. Verse 7 brings us to the life in the world or the life outside of the church. Must have a good reputation with uh, must have a good reputation or be well thought of by outsiders. You know, why do you think it matters what other people think about you? Especially these people. They don't even go to church. They don't even believe in God. Why does it matter what they think? Well, they may, and they probably will, disagree with your faith and your beliefs and probably most of your morals, but they shouldn't be surprised when they find out you're in leadership. In other words, or, or be surprised when they find out you're a Christian. They shouldn't go, Joe? Joe is an elder? Get out of here. There ain't no way. See, that becomes a disgrace to even what an unbeliever knows as good. You know what they're going to say? I will never go to that church. Ever. And then whenever... When, whenever someone brings up church so-and-so to Joe, what's he going to say? Whoa, whoa, whoa! You don't want to go to that church. Trust me. I know one of the leaders. <laughs> it's not good. It's not good. But if a person is not surprised, if they respond like, oh, Joe's elder? Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. You see, there's no trap. There's no trap to fall into. You ever heard the saying, your reputation precedes you? What's that saying? Your reputation went before you. People hear of you, and they know all about you before they've met you. You could be a negative influence. Be a barrier between them and God. Or you can be a positive influence. Be a bridge between them and God. So, if you don't learn anything, learn this. You are very important to the lives of others. How are you influencing them? Are you a bridge Or are you a barrier? This is for church leaders as well as leaders of ourselves. So we got to ask ourselves those questions. And when, when you ask yourself the question, answer yourself honestly. Don't try to fool yourself, deceive yourself, or justify your thoughts. Be honest with your answers. How is my personal life? Have I been leading myself well as I follow Jesus? How is my family life? 
Am I loving my family like Jesus loves my family? How is my church life? Does my church life reflect my personal life and my family life? Or have I been living a lie? Am I, do I, am I different when I'm alone or when I'm at home? Am I a different person when I'm at church? What would people outside of the church say about my character? Would they say that I'm a bridge? Or would they say I'm a barrier? Finally, most importantly, what decisions do I need to make today to lead myself well? Maybe that decision is a decision to follow Jesus. That will be the greatest decision that you ever made in your entire life. Let's commit to leading ourselves well. Amen? If there is anyone here that they want to know what it means to be committed to following Jesus, I, I, want, I want to talk with you. Come down and talk with me. Let's have that conversation. Let's pray. Father, we're very grateful for everything that you have done for us. The cross, uh, the pain that you had to go through, that you did because you love us. So, so thankful, Lord. Help us to make wise decisions. The courage, Lord, to step out and talk to other people about you. Father, give us give us a love for people that drives us to be obedient to you. Help us lead others to you well. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.